0: up your heads. The Bible clearly outlines Russia's destiny. In this episode, we consider some of the scriptures regarding Russia's turning back since 1991, when the Soviet Union collapsed and the changes since the rise of Putin's rule. The current build-up of the troops on the border of Ukraine has many parallels, you will recall to Hitler's invasion of Czechoslovakia at the beginning of World War II. Russia's days of being turned back are over. The bear is moving to fulfill its destiny which will eventually bring it into Israel and to the battle of Armageddon.
1: These are extraordinary times um, when the finger of God has never been so alive with activity and we liken it very much to the time when there were those who looked for the consolation of Israel looking for Messiah's first coming and um, there are signs of the times they had their prophecies they had the 70 week prophecy and and things like that and they were aware of what was coming um, and so they were anticipating it And we live in a very similar time, not to his first coming, but to his second, on the knife edge of the kingdom when the Lord is about to return. And yet our challenging times can sometimes drive us into somewhat of a paralyzed stupor. And we hope our our consideration this morning will help shake ourselves from the dust so that we do indeed look up and lift up our heads and recognize that our redemption indeed draws nigh. So when we consider the the subject that we have in front of us this morning, Russia's drawing forth begins, we really want to step back and consider that our community has been looking at this back since 1948, when Brother Thomas wrote these memorable words, the future movements of Russia are notable signs of the times because they are predicted in the scriptures of truth. The Russian autocracy in its plenitude and on the verge of dissolution is the image of Nebuchadnezzar standing upon the mountains of Israel ready to be smitten by the stone. When Russia makes its grand move for the build-up of its image empire, then let the reader know the end of all things um, as at present constituted is at hand. And we live very much in those times when we see the preparations that are taking place. Now, when Brother Thomas wrote, it was when the Tsars ruled Russia. They had been ruling for some 600 years. And he, in fact, sent a copy of Elpis Israel to Tsar Nicholas I, who you see depicted there in front of you, who was Tsar of Russia at the time. And Christadelphians have identified Russia as the leader of the nations, described in Ezekiel chapter 38, where we read, Son of man, set thy face against Gog, the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, as the RSV puts it, uh, of Meshach and of Tubal, and prophesy against him. And with them, of course, there are other nations gathered, Persia, Ethiopia, Libya with them, all of them with shield and helmet. And, of course, there are the nations of Gomer and all his bands, the house of Tagama of the north quarters and all his bands, and many people with him. Now, christadelphians have been identifying these nations by the use of of scripture and of um, historians, and not just ourselves, but many um, Bible believers over the years have looked at this, and we have considered how that Russia basically makes up, of course, that that big part of that confederacy. We've got the Tarshish nations, and with them Sheba and Dedan, and the merchants of Tarshish, the young lions thereof, which would be extended to New Zealand and Canada, and those other nations that make up part of that British Empire. Again, um, other subjects that we're not going to consider today, but Russia itself is Rosh Uh, Meshach and Tubal the land of Magog of course and um, we have then of course the extension of all those other nations involved with it. um, Tagama and we got Persia and Ethiopia down to the south, Libya um, and there's of course Assyria and other ones that get named in different prophecies but this is the picture that we have been expecting for many many years. Now what is fascinating as we consider these things is that Brother Thomas anticipated this writing the book Anatolia in 1868 otherwise called Russia triumphant and Europe chained and it it was later called Exposition of Daniel. So this is something that uh, our community has been looking for. We've listened to lectures on, we've listened to Bible classes on it over and over and over again. And when we consider and just step back, it's helpful to kind of look at Russia prior to the development of the, um, the current system that we see there, prior even to the Soviet Union. This is a map from 1941 uh, entitled The Growth of the Russian Bear. And really, it goes back to the time of 1462 before Columbus discovered America in 1492. You can see in red there the area that Russia comprised back then. And then it was 1505 when they added to it quite an area um, and that was about the same time when the construction of St. Peter's Basilica was taking place. Luther would write his theses. Um, we would have Tyndale writing the Bible or translating it. And then in 1564, more territory would be added at the same time of the Council of Trent, just before the massacre of uh, St. Bartholomew's Day at the Huguenots. Um, and then up to 18 or 1689, William of Orange would become King of England. and Louis the 14th would be the Sun King of France and a huge swath of territory leading right out to the Far East uh, would be added to Russia and then 1762 just before the French Revolution and before Cook arrived in New Zealand we would have other territories added to Russia and then in 1801 just before brother Thomas was born and uh, before the Napoleonic Wars began in earnest more area leading into Europe and then, of course, uh, 1854, really bringing us to the height of uh, the, the Russian expansion. And again, um, 1894 um, kind of caps it off um, with Tsar Nicholas. And this is what Russia looked like long before the Soviet Union. And I think that's very important for us to get into our minds that this is the case. And then in, in World War I, there were some areas that were lost to Russia. And of course, these would be gained back later on. So this is what the picture was um, when most of our brethren and sisters, grandparents, -grandparents, great-grandparents, great-great-grandparents were giving their lectures on Bible prophecy. Now Tsar Nicholas of course would be the last of the Tsars. He started his reign in 1896 but it would be at this point in time that the Russian Revolution would come along in his lifetime 1917 which would bring about the end of the empire and three men would be responsible for this. There was um, Vladimir Lenin, uh, Leon Trotsky and Stalin. And those three really would begin what was called the Soviet Union. Of course, Stalin would uh, murder off uh, Trotsky after Lenin's death, and that was around 1928. But these are the leaders of what was to become the Soviet Union. And this was what most of our our brethren and sisters who are obviously still alive um would remember was this time um when of course there would be these leaders such as uh malenkov in, from the 50s basically um but really it got really exciting with khrushchev 1955 to 1964 the cuban missile crisis when kennedy and him would go head to head brezhnev who would rule the ussr and build up the military he would send the troops into Czechoslovakia and into uh, Afghanistan. Andropov, who was only there for about 15 months, um, but also during the time of, of Afghanistan. And Chemenko, which was only 13 months, he died very quickly. Um, and then Gorbachev, the last of the leaders, and of course it was under him that everything changed. And that was when I was just coming out of high school, I would have been around 18, 19 years old, and in fact, when we went to write uh, uh, history exams for high school, we were told uh, don't answer the questions according to what's happening currently in the news. Otherwise, you're going to fail your history exam. So the, the USSR, as it had been, as we look at it growing now, um, it grew out and covered up much of what would be called um, the Soviet sphere, um, and this was that U- United uh, Soviet Socialist Republic, including Belarus, Ukraine, and those other nations, Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, and so on. Um, initially, it was joined um, into the whole area or went into the whole area of um, this, the uh, the European region, um, Eastern Europe, uh, which would be the... the um, the the block that would the Warsaw Pact as it was actually called. Um, Tito would initially join it. Um, actually China and Mongolia for a while will both be involved. Um, and then Syria and Iraq would come under the Soviet sphere in around 1944. Um, at the same time Yugoslavia would drop out 1949. Egypt would come into their sphere in 1950 or thereabouts with Gamal Abdel Nasha. And then we would have North Korea and North Vietnam coming under their sphere and Laos in 1960 and then around the same time China would disappear. But this is kind of the picture that most of us would remember um, who grew up um, as I did under the time period when the Soviet Union was around. Now for many of us um, those times are long gone but it's helpful to get an idea of what this looked like back in the day. And of course, it was a frightening time, um, that the Six Day War. Um, Russia was there in the Middle East trying to keep its influence, um, keeping everything at what they used to call a low boil, uh, bringing tanks and artillery and jets and advisors into the Middle East, as Michael Oren captures in his book, Six Days of War. Um, and again 1967 and 73, um, basically they were in the Middle East and they were fighting somewhat of a proxy war through these other nations at the time of Khrushchev. Um, And uh, as these things developed, though, what would happen is is they would bring further influence. They would go into Libya in 1969, Muammar Gaddafi, um, Sudan in 1969 as well, um, and then after the uh, the fall of Saigon in 1974, um, you would see Vietnam united and also uh, Cambodia would be joining in with them. And then in 1978, there was a revolution in Afghanistan of all places, and it came under the Soviet sphere with a communist government. And Iran likewise underwent a, a revolution, the Islamic Revolution in 1979, and Russia was the first to recognize um, Iran and the, um, the new Islamic uh, rulers in Iran. So they've been very involved in all of the things that were, were sort of going on. But what's interesting is when we come to Ezekiel 38, and, and if you have that open on your lap, that would probably be helpful. We will be referring to it several times. to read here some of the language in verse 4, I will turn thee back... And then he says, I'll put hooks in thy jaws and bring thee forth." We've had this great description of this great confederacy, but he describes there being a turning back at this point in time. Now, the word there is is a form of the verb, which basically means to to bring something back, to restore, to refresh, to repair, or to lead something away, to turn it right around, to show a uh, turning or to an apostasize, So something that was going in one direction gets brought into another direction. And that's exactly what we've seen. So Russia, as it was expanding, or the Soviet Union, would go through a period of turning back. And there were brethren who considered this at the time. Um, and they wrote about these things. So we have our brother Graham Pierce who would write about this? He would say in um, the book, uh, Russia, the Vatican, and the Invasion of Israel. Now, this is writing back in 1970. while well, at the height of the, the Cold War, he says it's possible that the presence of the Tarshish power in the land at this time will bring about some great stability in the area. There is a phrase used twice in Ezekiel 38 and 39 that may have some bearing on this. I will turn thee back. The language suggests that there has been an arresting of Gog's progress, a driving back in order that he can be turned about and brought forth. It may be that during this temporary reversal of Gog's progress, the land is able to dwell safely and at rest. And he goes on to state in the same book, we can reasonably expect then a general larger scale reorientation of strategic positions, Britain and the U.S. reestablishing themselves in the Near East because they left more or less after the the first or second world war, I should say. And so they, they think that they would be, he writes that they would bring into being two great Uh, Power blocks this king of the north as Daniel describes in chapter 11 and a king of the south Um, and this would include cooperations uh, with Israel and possibly the occupation of Egypt again at this time too, relations between Israel and the Arabs may be changing. Now this this was written at a time when the Entebbe raid was about to take place, when you would have Carlos the Jackal hijacking Israelis, terrorism throughout the world, and it just did not look like this kind of thing would happen. But as Brother Graham correctly predicted, looking at these scriptures, um, these things would begin to take place. In fact, it was in 1979 that Russia started to lose its influence in the Middle East when Egypt's Anwar Sadat threw the Soviets out and made a peace agreement with Israel. And it really did, at the time, upset the apple cart. And then, in 1979, the highly religious Afghani tribes revolted against the atheistic Soviet-style government, which had come into power in Afghanistan, and the Soviets would pour troops into this area. And this would, of course, be during the reign of Brezhnev, um, and Afghanistan was turned into very much a war zone. And this is long before the Americans were there, and that's 1979. And of course, there were some very interesting players. Um, The Mujahideen, the Afghani freedom fighters, were funded by the CIA. And this included the individual on your screen, who would become famous later on, but at the time, he was an unknown. Osama bin Laden, who was the son of a wealthy Arabian uh, family, um, a father from Yemen, uh, a mother from Syria. And he would join the, the struggle and become the financier for the mujahideen um, throughout the world. And of course, we know his career later on. Well, in the meantime, um, Gorbachev would take over in uh, in the uh, the Soviet Union. And he would begin this policy of perestroika, which would be trying to restructure Russia uh, and glasnost, which was the idea of giving people freedom um, from this, this uh, reduction of old uh, war rhetoric that had been going on with the leaders of the Soviet Union. And of course, in 1986, we would start seeing these treaties, a nuclear arms treaty with Reagan. And then in 87, he met with um, Thatcher. And uh, in 1988, they withdrew from um, Afghanistan. In 89, he would meet with the Pope, and um, and then there would be this whole solidarity situation that would break out in Europe, and Poland and other nations would be looking for their freedom from Europe. And then in 1989, the Berlin Wall would come down, and that was basically right when um, I was writing my exams. And following this, there would be a coup in 1991, which would see Russia go into collapse. And so this was the situation when they withdrew their troops from Afghanistan it would create a situation where the whole communist bloc, the Warsaw Pact, would collapse. Um, And then, on actually, 30 years ago, this last week, in 1991, December 25th, Gorbachev resigned and the USSR would pass into history. And of course, once it disappeared, all its client states then would be disconnected from it, leaving a rather isolated Russia um, for the next 30-some years. So what we've seen for, the, for many people's lifetimes, um, who will be listening to this, this uh, talk, is we've witnessed the time of a bear in hibernation. Um, it was no longer building an empire just trying to get its own house in order. It had been turned back as Ezekiel had described. Now, while the bear was hibernating, other things were going on in the world. The collapse of the Soviet Union and its withdrawal from its client states would create a a state of great instability. 1990, Saddam Hussein would invade the nation of Kuwait. And in 1991, we would see um, the United Nations led by America Um, And with them, Britain, Canada, Australia, New Zealand and a host of other nations moving into the Gulf area where they hadn't been for many years and the first Gulf War would result. And so the realignment described in Daniel 11 and Ezekiel 38 that our brother Graham talked about was starting to take place. The whole Warsaw Pact had collapsed. It had crumbled uh, with the the collapse of the Soviet Union, creating this power vacuum. And as the planes were being flown out of Europe, because we no longer needed to protect ourselves from Mother Russia, um, what happens in Kuwait is there is this war, Saddam Hussein seizes um, Kuwait, and so the jets on their way back to Canada and other places end up going into the Saudi Arabian Peninsula, and of course we see this development of this King of the South power, and NATO then became somewhat for a while there irrelevant because there was no Russia, so what is everybody um, united against? Um, And so that's at the time there was a bit of a discussion even amongst Christadelphians. Maybe we've got Ezekiel 38 wrong. Maybe we've misunderstood these things. Maybe things aren't the way that we expected them to be. But of course, we know the scriptures predict a king of the north, this northern confederacy, Daniel chapter 11 and the King of the South, a Southern Confederacy. So the Southern Confederacy was beginning to develop in Saudi Arabia and Yemen and and those different nations down there, working with America and Canada and other states. Um, And the Northern situation, though, was still in disarray. and, And we sat back and watched, wondering how this was all going to come back together again. And in that vacuum, of course, we would see Bill Clinton put immense pressure on Israel to bow to the creation of a Palestinian state. And so in 1993, they signed a peace agreement with the PLO, which, of course, turned out to be a bit of a a fake peace. Um, And then again with Jordan in um, 1994, which was called a cold peace, very similar to that that we had with um, uh, the, the nation of Egypt. Now, all these things happened during what were called the Yeltsin years, when Russia was in complete and absolute disarray. And it was in 1999 that the uh, the now rather ailing Yeltsin, very much a drunk, and lost his way, so to speak, was hastily um, replaced by an absolute nobody. Some guy named Vladimir Putin that nobody had heard about. He was a former KGB, which became the FSB spy. Um, and uh, they put him in place and his handlers quickly realized they had a problem. He didn't actually have a party So they created a party, appointed him the head of it so that he could be legitimately the leader of the Russias. And nobody knew what to expect. Not even his handlers knew what he was going to do or what they they thought they were going to do with him. And of course, it didn't go the way they expected now at the same time 2001 we had uh, a new president in the united states Uh, bill clinton was out al gore lost the the election and um, he was sworn in on january 20th 2021 and he had run on a platform of isolationism he had basically attacked bill clinton for endless deployments of u.s troops around the world which he on his platform promised to end he says we are not Permanent peacekeepers dividing warring parties. Well, at least that was his plan until, of course, just into his first year on September the 11th, a few months later, um, the World Trade Towers were attacked and everything was going to change. And so what we would see is America would be going back into the Middle East. And they would go into the area of um, Afghanistan and also Uzbekistan. They would have bases there where they would go and fight this war on terror. And in nineteen or two thousand and three, um, under the guise of uh, or under the story of um, weapons of mass destruction, they would also move into Iraq. So when you consider, these are all the areas that Russia uh, used to hold on to. Well, Russia was out of all these areas at this point in time and really incapacitated to do anything. Um, But it wasn't just going to sit back. After all, the scriptures had pointed out how things were going to go. So let's go back to Ezekiel 38 and consider this phrase. I will turn thee back. And then he says, I will put hooks into thy jaws and I will bring thee forth and all thine army. So the idea of hooks is the Hebrew word meaning a ring or a fetter, and it's what they would do with, with a captive. They would put a hook either in their jaw, sometimes in their nose, and they would pull them along by a chain. And it would be something that they would do, it was rather savage, but they would drag people along behind their their uh, in great long chain gangs, um, not like the ones that we might think of where you're handcuffed, literally it's through your jaw, or literally through your nose, and you will be dragged forth. So this confederacy was going to be brought out of its cage, pulled by a hook in the jaw, attracted to the spoil, as we read later on in the chapter. That's what the scriptures have to say. So although Russia had been pulled back, there was going to be a bringing forth A causing to come forth or to lead out, to carry out, to draw out, or to take out. So God is going to bring this nation that has been turned right back at one point in time out once again. And that's really what we have been looking at. Now if you've got Ezekiel 38 open, just take a look down to verse 7. He says, be thou prepared and prepare for thyself, thou and all thy company that are assembled unto thee, and be thou a guard. Now that word prepared is described by Gesenius as to set something up, to stand firm, to be established, to set up, to strengthen, to constitute, to appoint one as a king, or to direct aim as a weapon, to apply the mind to, to prepare and make ready. So this is exactly... What has been taking place over the last few years is a time period of preparation, a firming up, an establishing, a strengthening, and a beginning to take aim with weapons, and a pointing of a a leader. I mean, you just look at the way the structure in Russia has changed. It is an autocratic system now. Now, when we consider that, Joel also shed some light on this. In Joel chapter 3 and at verse 4, he says, Proclaim ye this among the Gentiles, prepare war. And note the phrase here, wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near, let them come up. So prepare is the idea to consecrate. uh, And it actually means, is used often to to hallow something. So this is where the idea of holy war sometimes comes from. Uh, This will be a crusade. But part of this is arousing, waking up, stirring up the mighty men of war, which tells you that prior to this, they have been asleep. And so that's the the phase that we've lived in for probably the last 30 some years, is a sleeping Russian bear. But that is all been changing in a very uh, short little while. The bear has been waking up. Here's an interesting quote from Putin. This is back from 2005. He says, above all, we should uh, acknowledge that the collapse of the Soviet Union was a major geopolitical disaster of the century. As for the Russian nation, it became a genuine drama Tens of millions of our co-citizens and co-patriots found themselves outside Russian territory. Moreover, the epidemic of disintegration infected Russia itself. Now, that was an address he gave to the Kremlin in 2005. Now, I want you to remember this phrase. There are Russian citizens that are outside of Russian territory. That was his big issue at the time. Now, as Christadelphians, we'd been saying this has to turn around. Well, then the world started realizing that's what was happening. This is an economist from 2006. Putin uh, depicted here as a gangster. Don't mess with Russia. And then 2008, Russia resurgent. How the West should respond. So this is something that's been going on for quite some time now. In fact the same magazine uh, The Economist in 2007 uh, made the comment that the bear is happy to be back. Russia has returned to the world st- as a strong and confident power restoring balance in world affairs Russian's Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov would have to say back in 2007. And so you see here a change that's taking place And, you know, what had been a docile bear during the 1990s was now exerting its strength once again. And so we saw basically this idea of them turning off the gas and they had control over certain things. And the the economists then saying that, you know, the European nations are going to stand up to Russia and they're depicted like a bowl of jelly. Um, And that's about all that they've done since this time period. And so when we start looking at what has taken place, it's quite fascinating in the last few years. And sometimes we forget about these things. In 2008, Russian troops went into Georgia. Now, Georgia, to give a little bit of background, had been a Soviet state which gained independence in 1991. Um, It was under Russian control, um, a part of it was anyway, But it was backed uh, by pro-Russian separatists. And in 2002, Russia began this massive allocation of Russian passports to the residents of Abzakia and South Ossetia. Um, And so what happened was, uh, without the permission of the Georgian government, all these people became, quote-unquote, Russians. Um, And so it then became necessary in 2005, um, when the the Georgian government tried to crack down on this, um, and, and this area that wanted to break away, that Russia would have to, you know, Look after its citizens abroad. So we had this Georgian war that would kick into place. Hostilities began in August of 2008. They sent their forces in to protect their citizens, and so that was the first time a war had been fought by the so well by Russia since the fall of the Soviet Union, and they were willing to use military force to attain their political objectives. and And many Russian, uh, many uh, countries in Europe, especially. Um, would uh, would um, criticize Russia for this. And, and one of them was Ukraine, um, their president, Yukashenko, who basically said, well, because of what Russia's done here, we are not going to um, extend their leases of the bases in Sebastopol in Crimea. Well, that created a bit of an issue. So fast forward to 2014 with the idea of losing the bases in Crimea, Russia was none too happy. And you've got to remember that, you know, if we go back in Russia's history with Ukraine, um it expanded into the area of Ukraine in 1796 with Catherine the Great, and of course they took that area of the Crimea and this is where they had their warm water ports. So they could the, the, the northern ports in Russia freeze during the winter. But in the south, this, this um, Crimean port would be open all year round, and they would have access to the Mediterranean. So back to 1783, um, there would be this, this great um, port in Russia. Um so 70 years later Tsar Nicholas I wanted to extend control over Russian citizens interestingly who were living in Palestine they were orthodox Christians and he wanted to protect them from the Ottoman Turks well this uh, sparked the Crimean War from 15, uh, 1853 to 1856 and it was Russia fighting against the the Ottomans the French and the British and they laid siege to Sebastopol in the Crimea And it was 11 months uh, the siege took place and eventually uh, Russia lost and the French and British, um, you know, had them restore whatever territories they had taken. And in 1856, they restored the Crimea and uh, Sebastopol to them. But what's interesting in this is that, you know, this was such a massive thing that there are guns um, from Sebastopol all over Um, Ontario and Canada. In fact, this is just in a park down the road from us, um, in Brantford, and they brought back these uh, guns from Sebastopol and they're by our Parliament buildings. They are in a little park in Brantford, Waterloo, Guelph, all over the place, celebrating the victory of the British Empire. And Of course, Canada was one of those young lions, um, over Russia and stopping them from, basically, their advance into um, the Middle East. Well, the USSR would basically come into existence, as we saw, and it would have territory that came from Poland in 1939, and Romania 1940 and 1948, and a little bit from Czechoslovakia in 1945. And it was in 1954 that the Russian Soviet Federalist uh, Republic would transfer to Crimea a piece of land, or Crimea, to Ukraine um, to basically uh, utilize, uh, because they were all part of the Soviet Union. They didn't need to worry about it. They still had the ports there. Um, And so since 1796, it had been part of Russia. Only about 22% of the people in Crimea were Russians or sorry, were Ukrainians, the West were Russians. And so they gave this piece of territory to Ukraine, never thinking that the Soviet Union would collapse. But of course it did. And Sebastopol, uh, Russia's warm water port, was still used by their forces to 2005. Now, that being the case, um, the USSR collapses. Um, Russia moved into Georgia and Ukraine told them that they were going to cancel the leases on the bases. Ukraine said they could no longer use them and um, this of course didn't go over so well. So in 2014 we had these little green men appearing in Ukraine and they fought a war in the Donbas region and in the area of Crimea um, where these Russian troops without insignia um, so they weren't claimed to be Russian at the time. They went in and they took the area and restored it to control of Russia. And Russia's premises, as is picked up in this uh, political cartoon, is we're going to save you from drowning. That's the Crimea. Um, and this is how the world saw it. The Russian bear was seizing the prey of the Crimea. Russians saw it totally different, that this was their territory anyway. They had given it to Ukraine and then Ukraine had left, so they were taking it back. Um, So here we have him signing the agreement to annex Crimea in March 14th, 2000, uh, or 18th, 2014. So these are the events that are leading up to the current crisis today. And uh, the head of NATO um, at the time said, look, it's not about the Ukraine. Putin wants to restore Russia to its former position as a great power. So that's the issue here. This is what's going on. So this was 2015. And um, this was another political cartoon. Of course, I'm hungry. I've been hibernating since 1991. And you see there the Russian bear is about to devour the Ukraine. And so this was a picture from 2014, the L.A. Times. And even they could see that the time of Russia's turning back was fast ending. And so when all this went down, there was an interesting article in the Moscow Times basically stating that Russia intends to use its presence there, that's in the Crimea, to spearhead its interests in the Mediterranean Sea. The Black Sea fleet stationed in Crimea, Sevastopol, will be used to extend Russia's presence in long-range sea zones. And of course, we have seen that come to pass in the last seven years because Although, you know, Obama was trying very hard to hit the reset button with Russia, um, it wasn't going very well. And of course, in 2015, um, Russia would set its eyes upon Syria because Sebastopol um, houses the Russian fleet, but its main port in the Mediterranean was in Tartus in Syria, um, and an opportunity began to present itself in 2011. You see, Obama, uh, in 2011, pulled the last U.S. troops out of Iraq. Um, and then so Iraq is, is vacated of American troops. And um, December the 18th, 2011, they would fully uh, withdraw. And after this, the country would fall into civil war. And so, of course, into that scene, we had ISIS move in, which we remember from a few years ago. And so they would take over um, Iraq or a good portion of it and also the area of Syria. (coughs) So we see them here both in Syria and Iraq. And so uh, Bashar al-Assad would phone Putin and ask him to come to the rescue, which of course Putin was very happy to do. He would come along and he would rescue Assad um, from the ISIS powers. When we're looking at this, and we see these things as they roll on, we've got to remember that this has all been going on at lightning speed, like one year after the other, (coughs) something else is taking place. And so the Russians came in great force into Syria. And so when we look at this, I want you to listen to um, the words of um, one of the US energy tycoons at this point in time, commenting on what was taking place?
2: Here, in Russia, they struggled a little bit to take the Ukraine, didn't they? There was some conversation about it and all. You knew what they were going to do. They did it. We got a weak president, to, you know. Now, they just kind of waltz over into the Mideast. They were kicked out of the Mideast in 73, mm-hmm. and now they're back. They're back, and that is no kidding back. And you watch them, they'll move quickly into there. And uh, they got a new sheriff in town with the Russians uh, coming in the Mideast.
1: And so, you know, Obama's red line, as this cartoon puts it, uh, turned into a landing strip for Russia in Syria. And so by the end of 2017, Russia had bases all the way through Syria, six of them. And um, December 26, 2017, uh, a news article read, we have begun forming a permanent presence there. And so this is what sort of has been the backdrop to events going on in the Middle East. But it wasn't just there. We also had Afghanistan, um, where we have um, events that were unfolding very rapidly. And we've really seen those this year um, in a very dramatic way. And so when we consider what's happened in Afghanistan by 2020, America was basically just about out of all of the former Soviet states and Russia was moving back into them again, making military agreements, selling them equipment, opening bases, uh, security operations and cooperation with everybody except Afghanistan. But as Ben Connibal, an American military strategist, put it quite clearly, Russia will move like water into the cracks and crevices left by the partial U.S. withdrawal and by the lack of focused U.S. policy. So as America seemed to be vacillating and nobody really knew what they were doing, um, Russia was moving in. And so we, this is going back a ways. Uh, Obama, in 2014, Um, after um, Osama bin Laden was killed, he basically said, this is the end of our mission into Afghanistan. Trump, in 2020, in February, announced that they would withdraw troops from Afghanistan, set a date of May 1st to do it, um, drew down the troops to 2,500 during his presidency. And, of course, Biden um, came into office. He delayed it a little bit. Uh, August 31st, the last of the troops were pulled out, and of course it was a complete mitigated disaster as far as America's prominence in the world was concerned. As the last U.S. soldier left... Russia was moving into the vacuum. Now, this is a uh, um, a, a Japanese uh, newspaper article. Russia looks to fill Afghan power vacuum as the US exits. And the article says Russia has appointed itself as mediator in a war-torn country underlying its position as a key stakeholder and hardly hiding its desire to expand its influence in the region to fill the power vacuum left by retreating US military. It goes on to say about Vladimir Putin uh, that he said, I think many politicians in the West are starting to come to grips with the reality that it is unacceptable to impose alien standards of political life and conduct on countries and nations. And so Russia, moving into this vacuum area. Foreign Minister Lavrov meeting with the Taliban as well, the top Russian brash pushing this forward, and and as they left, they left billions of dollars worth of equipment behind, and this stuff here was delivered to Tehran, which of course um, caused all kinds of consternation that American military equipment was being handed over to the Iranians of all people. And so when you look at what that looks like on a map, you now have that whole underbelly of Russia um, coming back uh, into Russian control. Afghanistan, Iran, Iraq, Syria, Tajikistan, mm-hmm. Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, that whole region is now under Russian control, or at least its satellites are basically uh, being formed there, and it has its influence in those areas once again. Now this has had another byproduct, and that is that with the repelling of the Russians, Europe is calling, or of the Americans, Europe is calling on the member states to establish an army due to what they call the collapse of America as a superpower. And so this is something that we've also been looking forward for a while. Uh, They are also to be armed and prepared. And so when we look at that and consider it, um, we now turn our attention to Europe um, because Russia has begun a a crisis. This began a little while ago um, and what we'll call a gas attack on Europe. And so Ezekiel chapter 38 again, verse 7, we read there that phrase, Be prepared, prepare for thyself, thou and all thy company that are assembled unto thee, be thou a guard unto them. Now that word guard has two meanings. One of which is the idea of somebody who's taken into custody like somebody in a prison in a station of watch that is guarded or observed. Joseph is the way the word is used by Gesenius or Gesenius points out. And the other one is the idea to keep watch of or have protection over somebody um, as Nehemiah kept the city safe. So we see this with Russia keeping Iran and Syria safe trying to protect them from the Western influence, but also the idea of Europe being brought under its control and probably more along the lines of the first definition of the word there. And of course, this is what Brother Thomas had referred to back when he wrote Anatolia, which of course being in, ter- or in their title was Russia Triumphant and Europe Chained. Well, exactly how Russia would chain Europe remain to be seen. But recently, we've been seeing this taking place. This article goes back to 2014. It's actually a little booklet called Russia's or Putin's Grand Strategy. Um, and it says that the Russian government has deployed a wide array of tactics and instruments in its efforts to restore a sphere of influence over former Soviet space. And so he goes on to say Russia's withholding of energy has been an important tactical tool. Well, this has been going on in great earnest during this last uh, few months. This is Bloomberg, October 22nd. Outside supplies account for about 80% of the gas that EU consumes, most of it coming from Russia, Norway and Algeria, but the bulk is from Russia, so they didn't learn from 2014. Now just take a look at this. This is the map of Russia's expansion of gas into um, the area of Europe. The first began in 1967 when they built the Brotherhood Line going into uh, Ukraine. And then trans-gas was 1970 to 73, extending it to the, the borders of the what was then um, the, the communist bloc, and later on going right into Europe itself. There was the Soyuz line that, that met up with this, its, its national uh, export pipeline. The Trans-Balkan line, which would then go down into Turkey, and they would supply gas to Turkey, Bulgaria, and Romania, and others, other countries. And then Romania, or sorry, then the Yamal line would go through Belarus, Poland, and it would end up in Berlin, Germany. So this was the way it was, but then there started to be problems with Poland and the Ukraine. So Putin very wisely decided to start bypassing these. He built the Blue Stream line, which reduced the need to send gas through the Ukraine to Turkey. And then he built Nord Stream 1. So this is a gas line running through the north, same area, Baltic uh, Sea, and going all the way down there, um, t- bypassing basically the Yamal line, which was going through Poland and also through Ukraine. And then they built the Turkstream line, which would again further reduce the need for the Trans-Balkan line. And then what they've been working on since 2018 is the Nord Stream 2 line, which would basically mean they don't have to ship gas through the Ukraine at all, um, because the shipments of gas through the Ukraine is actually making Ukraine very wealthy, or certainly it's providing a lot of income. So that's what's been going on. They've been trying to reroute the gas, and Europe has been in a huge problem. So what they decided to do was they would try and switch to renewable energies. Um, But we'd like to point out this little verse, Luke chapter 8, verse 25, where after they had been on the sea and the Lord had commanded it to be still, um, he says, where is your faith? And the disciples wondered, saying to one another, what manner of man is this? For he commands even the winds and the water to obey him. Now, I just want you to keep that little passage in mind as we listen to this next little piece that's talking about why Europe is in such a problematic area right now with the issue of gas.
0: In recent months, we've seen hot weather in places like China and Japan and South Korea really drive up demand for liquefied natural gas, and that's raising prices. Whereas in South America, in a country like Brazil, a drought has seen it look to really ramp up its gas-fired power generation. When you bring this back to Europe, We saw in April and May, early this year, unseasonably cold weather conditions. And this meant that Europe's natural gas storage levels dipped below pre-pandemic five-year averages. To those closely monitoring Europe's natural gas storage levels, this was a sign of things to come, a clear warning sign of a potential supply crunch.
1: And what's really interesting is that Europe has tried to really put its, its, uh, its, its, its um, policy has been to use the, um, the uh, wind and renewable energies. But this is an article from September 29th that tells us the shortfall was driven by unfavorable weather conditions over the summer, which is one of the least windy across the UK and Ireland and one of the driest um, in the last 70 years. So when we're trying to replace gas with wind energy, we forget that it's the Lord who controls the winds and the seas. And so they've been dried right up and they have not had the wind, the, the least windy in 70 years. I mean, and that's fascinating when you consider uh, the New York Times saying that Europe has not built up sufficient gas storage to guarantee that there will be enough fuel to heat homes and powered businesses if the weather turns frigid. They goes on to say we are literally at the mercy of the weather for the next month or two. And so this is the issue. This was December 15th of this year. And so when you look at this and you see the chokehold that Russia, through its natural gas, has on Europe, it's amazing. When we look at Ezekiel chapter 38, as we did, Tarshish powers there in blue. Then we have Magog, uh, Rosh, and Tubal. The area of Magog, which is really the area of the Warsaw Pact countries. Um, and then the rest of the countries that basically are involved with this. But just notice where those oil and gas lines run as you see this. They're running all the way through that area of Magog. This is the area that they are to have control over, according to Ezekiel chapter 38. And that control is partially being brought about by oil and gas, which is a weapon that they are using to bring about their own will. Now, come to October of this year. In Belarus, um, we had another political crisis coming in, percolating on their border, a refugee crisis. Belarus was actually known as, as the White Russia. It was part of the Kievian Rus, or the Land of Rus, um, from 874 until uh, broken up by the Golden Horde and Genghis Khan that we've just been reading about in Revelation 9 and the four angels who came from the river Euphrates. So the Belarus area has been part of Russia for many, many years. Um, It was captured once again um, by Napoleon in 1812 when he went to take Moscow. Of course, that didn't work out very well for him. And so it came back under Russian control. Um, And then again, um, World War II, we have Hitler overrunning it. And um, the Soviet Union took it back again. And so it would be part of those states that would be part of that, that White Russia, or or, or the, the, when we think of the Tsar, Tsar of all the Russias, right? So there's White Russia, there's Little Russia, and there's the Great Area of Russia. Well, on December 8th, 1991, uh, bringing us back to the time of, of Boris Yeltsin, he signed an agreement to eliminate the USSR um, in uh, Belarus, and basically the leaders of the Ukraine were there, um, and they signed this agreement and said, that's the end of it. The USSR is done. And so, of course, what we've seen is this refugee crisis, about 3,000 to 4,000 refugees seeking asylum. Interestingly, they come from Iraq, mostly from Syria, Yemen, and Afghanistan. And you think, well, how on earth did they get to Belarus? Well, many of them were flown there as both the Polish prime minister and Lithuania's president have accused Russia of doing, is flying these immigrants there onto their border and then creating, manufacturing this crisis. Well, why on earth would that matter? What would they want to do this for? Well, this is Alexander Lukashenko, um, who's not recognized by Canada, the US, the EU, or or, um, or um, the USA. Um, or the UK, I should say, he's propped up by Russia, but he's warned, he says, that there will be a brutal reaction from Belarus if the Polish deploy tanks near the two countries border. He claims that Poland might want to start a war with us, and the Belarusian president basically said that the response would involve not just its own, but also Russian troops on the border. Now, why would they want to bring Russian troops to the border? Well, Look, to this. I would like
2: to mention one thing which Belarusian leader Lukashenko uh, mentioned yesterday that if there will be a military conflict between Russia and Ukraine, Belarus will be on the Russian side. This is also very important because uh, for, in this case, it will be not bilateral military conflict, but it will be at, at least trilateral military, military conflict.
1: And so not just Belarus, that was kind of the the ruse, I guess you could say, to get Russian forces there. We also have the Ukraine. And this really brings us to the pivot of what's going on in Europe right now. We've had Russian forces building up in mass near the Ukrainian border. And the reason for this is, again, given by um, Fedorov, this is Russia's former foreign minister, he explains why Russia is, is doing what they are doing.
2: Uh, pressure on uh, Ukraine, uh, from Ukraine on Donbas and Lugansk is growing, uh, number of the clashes on the borderline is increasing, and uh, from uh, our point of view, the concentration of uh, near 120,000 uh, Ukrainian uh, troops, uh, the, by the way, the most capable uh, for fighting the troops, is a danger for Lugansk and Donetsk, which is in fact is under Russian's protection. Uh, Let's not forget that in this area now nearly 650,000 people received Russian passports and are Russian citizens. So Putin is considering this as a legal ground to take any kind of action, including military action, to protect them.
1: So again... If you just listen carefully to what he says, it's the same premise that Putin used to move into the Crimea that these people are actually Russian citizens, they have Russian passports, and so he will move to protect them. Interestingly, that is the same premise that Hitler used to annex the Sudetenland and move into Czechoslovakia in World War II or beginning World War II in 1938. Now, nobody thought that Hitler would actually do it. And when you listen to the news, nobody thinks Russia's actually going to invade the Ukraine. But when you look at the pattern, it's quite fascinating to see. And so Russia has been bringing its military there, over 180,000 boots on the ground by some estimations, and this massive military buildup of tanks and weapons and military vehicles as we see here. And it began, really, if you go back to um, 19 or 2014, when they moved into the uh, Crimea. And then the Donbas region also came under its control and influence. That's where they've given all these people passports. Uh, they annexed Crimea in March 2014. And also another area called Transnitia, uh, where they airlifted a whole bunch of troops in as well um, to protect them from the Ukrainians. And this refugee crisis in Belarus has seen Russia move even more forces in both to help the Belarus out, but also along all those borders with the Ukraine. So you have this massive buildup of forces all the way around the outside that it's using as a pretense, this refugee crisis, moving all these soldiers in and all this military aid in. And when you look at that, you think, wow, like what is America going to do? What are they gonna do? The world's policemen, as they're sometimes called. Well, let's listen to the Secretary of Defense uh, about what America exactly is going to do. And just listen carefully to this. I know that the uh, department does not like discussing a potential red line, um, but is there a point where it would actually be beneficial to just say directly to Russia across this line and the US military gets involved to protect you know, a partner?
0: I think uh, in situations like this, I think uh, conveying red lines uh, only exacerbates the problem. I think we need to focus on finding ways to uh, to de-escalate uh, and uh, and to reduce tensions. Our goal in both cases, Tara is to uh, is to lead with diplomacy uh, and address these issues in a way that we don't get to conflict uh, and uh, and you've seen us, uh, you know, move to support them in terms of providing them uh, uh, materials and, and, and some advisors. And we're interested in making sure that they have what they need to be able to defend themselves.
1: So. so you hear there the wording they're going to give them materials, advisors, and what they need to, and notice what he says defend themselves, because Ukraine is not a member of NATO yet. So what is Russia going to do about this idea then moving military equipment into there? Well, they're a bit clearer in their response. Again, this is uh, Deputy Foreign Minister Andrey Fedorov or former Deputy Foreign Minister um, of Russia.
2: Uh, The question is if Russia will make a strike back. Mm -hmm. Strike back is only uh, possible in case if Ukrainian army will start at least a limited uh, offensive attack for example towards donetsk or which is the most dangerous scenario if ukrainian troops will try to have to make a military operation trying to cut off donetsk and lugansk from a russian border in this case uh, russian military interference in this last case will be inevitable the other part of russians are saying okay Why we are waiting so long? Let's accept them as a part of Russia. Let's close this gap, which is existing now. Let's make them uh, part of Russia, especially because, as I want want to mention again, one third of the population of Donbas and Lugansk republics have Russian passports. So, from this point of view, uh, this is just a question of time. What will happen? because if there will be a military clash between Ukraine and uh, Russia, it will speed up the process of inclusion of uh, Don- Donbas and Lugansk area into Russia.
1: And so we see again, it's just a matter of time. Even if there isn't a military strike at this point, What he's basically telling you is that they are going to take over this whole area of Donbas, which is the the economic area of Ukraine, where the oil and gas is, where the industry is. They're going to take over this area and bring it under their control. But this is the the premise that's being used. This is the idea of Russian citizens. So when you look at NATO and we say, well, what will NATO do in this case? Um, because this is what they're concerned about. And Jen Stoltenberg, the leader of NATO, has the following to say. Ukraine.
2: There will be a a high price to pay for Russia, Uh, if they once again use force against the independent sovereign nation, uh, Ukraine. Uh, We have demonstrated our ability to impose costs, economic, political actions, and also um, uh, over the years also increased our uh, military presence in this region, uh, just to make sure that all allies are totally uh, defended and protected against against any Russian aggressive actions.
1: So again, when you listen carefully, no military commitment. It's going to be economic costs that they're bringing against them. Well, let's hear what the president has to say about this. What made
0: you
2: decide to take a U.S. ground combat troops off the table when it comes to Ukraine? They never were on the table. And are you ready to send American troops into war and go into Ukraine to fight Russians on their battlefield? Look, here's the deal I've made it absolutely clear to President Putin, it's the last thing I'll say, that if he moves on Ukraine, the economic consequences for his economy are gonna be devastating.
1: So again, sending troops has never been an option, and it's only economic consequences, which he says are going to be devastating. Now just consider, brothers and sisters, what Putin said, and this was just the other day, December 23rd, at the annual press conference when asked about movement into Ukraine. You also say you have no intention of invading Ukraine. So will you guarantee unconditionally that you will not invade Ukraine or any other sovereign country? Our actions will not depend on
0: the course of the negotiations, but on the unconditional compliance with Russia's security today and from a historical perspective. In this context, we've made it clear that NATO's
1: further eastward expansion is unacceptable.
0: How would the Americans react if we placed our missiles on the border between Canada and the United States or on the Mexican border?
1: Not a single inch to the east. NATO guaranteed us that in the 1990s. And you know what? They cheated us. Five waves of NATO expansion. And there you go they're now in romania and poland with weapons systems this is what we're talking about it's not about us threatening someone have we come to the borders of the us or the uk maybe no they came to our borders you should not demand guarantees from us you must give us the guarantees it's up to you and you must do this immediately right now so you see the urgency brothers and sisters in in the voice of putin there and you realize that the world is probably on the edge of a major military conflict. The West is delusionable, really, about Russia's intentions and, and their abilities. And America is unwilling to engage militarily with Biden at the helm. And Putin knows he's got a very small window to operate before things change. I mean, what if Trump was reelected? Would he be able to do this then? Well, we don't know how the politics is going to work out, but what we do know is the end result, and we've been speaking about it for years. The Bible is very clear about the path that Russia is on. And if, if the evidence is not enough, I would just like to listen to one more clip. This is Dmitry Kislov, Russia's um, director, or the man that Putin appointed as the deputy director of Russia's state media. No. If Ukraine joins NATO, or if NATO develops military infrastructure there, we will hold a gun to America's head. Russia has the world's best weapons, hypersonic. You'd get the Cuban missile crisis all over again, but with a shorter flight time for missiles. We propose trying to avoid this situation, otherwise everyone will be turned into radioactive ash. So you can see this is pretty serious. So the world is scrambling to try and figure out Putin's next move. What will he do? And we don't know Russia's next move. But we do know the end result. This is to happen in the very near future. And Christadelphians have been watching this for years. And it's been playing out in front of our eyes. The time of Russia's turning back is over. It's now time for it to assemble its forces or as brother Thomas quite clearly put it in Elpis Israel those many years ago the future movements of Russia are notable signs of the times because they are predicted in the scriptures of truth. The Russian autocracy in its plenitude and on the verge of dissolution is the image of Nebuchadnezzar standing upon the mountains of Israel ready to be smitten by the stone. When Russia makes its grand move for the building up of its image empire, then let the reader know that the end of all things at present constituted is at hand. The long-expected but stealthy advent of the King of Israel will be on the eve of becoming a fact, and salvation will be to those who not only look for it, but have trimmed their lamps by believing the gospel of the kingdom unto the obedience of faith and perfection thereof in fruits meet for repentance. And so it is, brethren and sisters, prophecy is given to us for a reason, as we read in Habakkuk 2 verse 2. Yahweh answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain on the tables that he may run that readeth it. The vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie, though it tarry, Wait for it because it will surely come. It will not tarry. And so brothers and sisters, we are at that very end when it will speak and is speaking to us. So let us look at the great cloud of witnesses that have gone before us and those that even gather round us today and let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us and let us run with patience the race that is set before us looking for and holding on to the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever time we have left, let us wholly prepare ourselves to remember that our Lord is coming to save us from this world, this wicked generation, and to bring us to him. May we meet him with joy in that day when he comes. May we not be people that are afraid that he's coming, but overjoy us because as we have seen in these last couple of years, this world has nothing to offer and it cannot save itself. But our Lord has saved us and will bring us to him. And what we have to do is prepare for that day. Thank you very much.